0: Welcome to From the Booth, the weekly podcast sponsored by BYU's International Cinema Program. I'm Chip Oscarson, one of the directors for International Cinema. I'm joined here in the booth by Professor Mark Yamada, IC co-director. Hey, Mark. Hey, great to be here. And by IC assistant director Maridor Oskerson. Good to have you too, Mariner. Hi, Chip. On our week in review episode, we talk about the films that have already played at international cinema, in this case, the films that we screened the 26th to the 29th of February. Because they've already played, we will talk about them with no spoiler alerts. So feel free to use the time codes in the program notes if you need to skip forward in the conversation to preserve crucial plot points. The films we're gonna be talking about today include Aga, a film in the Siberian language Yakut, directed by Miklo Lazarov from 2018. We have Arctic, also from 2018, a modern-day Robinson Crusoe, directed by Joe Penna, about a man, played by Mats Mikkelsen, stranded and fighting for survival in the Arctic. We have The Gold Rush, Charlie Chaplin's comedic masterpiece from 1925 that he re-released in 1942. And our documentary this week was Genesis 2.0, directed by Christian Fry and Maxim Abregev from 2018. This is about climate change, bringing back extinct species, and the ethics of cloning. So should we start with Aga? Mariela, what did you like about the film Aga?
1: AGA was very interesting to me because it deals not only with environmental issues, but as well the family unit and what the family unit becomes in those environmental p- problems. So we have a, a very traditional family made of a man and a woman. And their lives are peaceful. I mean, they, they know how to work the elements. They function very well. And there is a, a codependency that is very healthy. Elements come and, and they know how to do it. They have the knowledge of how to live in these harsh conditions, but they do not know how to deal with the new changes that are, that are coming. And it's, it's just the message about all those changes, all the climate changes are hurting life everywhere at every level, animal life, vegetation, and, and the family unit as well. Because we see that that daughter left, and we understand that she's working in the city and that her life is completely different from the traditional life. And it's hurting this family unit.
0: Right. I think that one of the interesting things to me about this is that you're right. It's all about this change. And it's these subtle changes that are happening, changes that we are it's difficult, I think, for us to notice, and it doesn't hit us over the head. It's not like there's some kind of big dramatic things, but there's some kind of disease it's very subtle. Yeah, that seems to be affecting the animals, that they that they notice that there are changes in the weather. There's references to the fact that there used to be reindeer and they're not reindeer anymore, and that this is a uh, an important plot point. And then, yeah, the, the daughter, the contrast with the daughter, uh, who we don't meet until the very end of the film, she's gone to the city, but not just to the city, but uh, to work in a diamond mine. Mm-hmm. And this becomes an interesting metaphor, this idea of kind of harvesting the, the resources of the earth that have no intrinsic value, I think you can say about diamonds. I mean, there's nothing that they use the diamonds for, whereas the work of this couple, it's all about the, the things needed to sustain life, right? That they're totally connected to everything that they need. They're self-sufficient, but they're dependent on it, right? That they're specialists, but they're also generalists, and that they they know how to do all of these different things to provide for themselves
1: and dependent as well on the daughter like transferring that knowledge to the future the daughter and and the daughter is not there to receive it so it's 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 not only we see the mother dying right of that mysterious illness that she has that is found in nature as well so completely connected right humans cannot live without their environment we see as well that the daughter is is actually very present throughout the film through her absence, mm-hmm. and that this way of life is dying not only because of the climate change and all the things that come to just stop it, but as well because mm-hmm. there is a major shift in the future through the daughter leaving for the city.
0: So you read the the family then as being some kind of symbol for the possibility of continuity and... and Absolutely,
1: mm-hmm. yes. yeah, And that is... The film is showing us that there's none of that. Mm. And I, I like the image was very powerful for me of this huge mine and we're sitting at the edge of it and it's a an hole.
0: abyss. It's right? an abyss yeah. and
1: we're right there. Yeah. And just, just ready to fall. It it was yeah. just maybe some people will say it was heavy handed. For me it was this very poetic film that meant a lot.
0: Yeah, the for me it, it came off the the ending just a little bit a little bit heavy handed I, I think with the rise of the music and things like that I mean it, it's making a good point it also is it's very much an ethnographic film it seems like you can tell that the filmmakers don't come from this area and that they're and in fact he's Bulgarian mm-hmm. there's a lot of interest in in showing kind of the traditional things that they do right and and so there there was this kind of feeling of a little bit of an outsider's perspective mm-hmm. the old the whole time looking in and this kind of veneration of indigenous cultures which on the one hand is good but you always wonder in what ways are we projecting certain things on traditional oh, yes. cultures mm-hmm. that they live in greater harmony with yes, nature that they're for sure. right and, yeah. and and it's not that's not untrue but there's also something that's potentially problematic for with sure. that with that yeah. kind of discourse.
1: So here we see like a family unit dealing with harsh conditions how do you contrast this film with Arctic?
0: Yeah, so Arctic, I, I read, is a similar kind of film in that both are very interested in what happens if you strip away all of the, the kind of networks that support us in modern life, right? That, uh, you know, very few of us raise our own food, you know, fix our own cars, educate our own children, right? That we, we outsource this. We specialize in one thing. We get money that allows us to kind of, you know, to buy the services we need from other people. And I think that... The disruptions in these flows, and right now we're in the middle of this, right, that uh, with the coronavirus, you know, that there's this kind of anxiety about, well, what happens if supply chains from East Asia are suddenly cut off, right? Where are we going to get our toilet paper from or, you know, (laughs) our iPhones and all those things? I mean, you actually see this going on in the stores, right, that there's this kind of panic buying right now. And... And what these films are playing out are precisely this anxiety, right? That this fantasy of, could we survive, right? So in this case, we have Mats Mikkelsen playing a man, Overgord. we don't I know his full name even, who has been, uh, he's, there's been some kind of plane wreck in the Arctic. Uh, he's stranded there. We don't get that, that back story exactly. We just, we meet him at the beginning of the film, in the middle of his life that he's carved out for himself. And one of the the pleasing things, I think, for us as a viewer is he makes no mistakes, right? He's good Mm -hmm. at doing this. Uh, He can completely support himself. Mm -hmm. And there's a little bit of a sense that he can do that... In perpetuity, if he needed to, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. He's got fish that he can that mm-hmm. he can fish. He seems to have enough fuel to mm-hmm. you know to kind of get by. Certainly, he wants to be saved, but we take a certain kind of pleasure in seeing how completely self sufficient he is, not dependent on the outside world. Yeah. But then you uh, the the kind of the thing that drives the plot forward is that there's a rescue helicopter that comes for him, and and, and crashes right. It kills one of the pilots right away. The other pilot is unconscious, is is severely wounded. And that kind of human connection becomes the impetus that drives the rest of the plot. He can't stay. If she's Mm going to survive, he's going to have to make a a break for it, so to speak. He does kind of choose, like, humanity, right, over... He does. And and he makes the harsh decision to, to cross what he wouldn't normally do, right? I mean, he would stay where he was, but he makes the decision... To save her. And so in some ways making the decision to go against kind of his instincts with this kind of natural order. Right? That's right. Yeah. So if
1: we see a narrative about like climate change, I mean, there's a message, right? That it, it is about each other and it is about saving each other. And it is about moving away from that. Not We, we won't say comfortable for Arctic, right? But but yep. it was working. But it's for us moving away from a lifestyle that, that is comfortable, that we know very well, to make that trip yeah. Into a little bit the unknown, but to kind of like change our, our ways.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that the final the final scene of the film, which is you know, which is so crucial, right? And, and apparently, Matt Mickelson actually wanted his character to die, that he thought it would be a better film for him to not make it. You know, I, but,
1: I'm glad it's hopeful. I am so <laughs> grateful know, for the, that. The
0: helicopter that, that you yes. we think has seen him, but then doesn't seem to have seen him, he, you know, he burns his coat right in this kind of it final... He gives it all. You know, yes. Yes. But what does he do? He, you know, he lays down and he holds on to this lady's he hand. He does. And, and then, of course, we see the helicopter as they kind of are unconscious. The, the helicopter lands you know, behind them, so it does end up on this very hopeful tone. I think that I really like this film and I think one of the reasons that I like the film is that the director Joe Penna is surprisingly restrained. That there's so many ways that he could have overdone it. And mm-hmm. and, and it's really remarkable because he's a YouTube <laughs> you know, he's a YouTube director. This is his first feature-length film. He's done some other you know kinds of things, but it's a pretty big jump from mm-hmm. the mystery it guitar like man medium, right? stuff. Yeah. It but really he does it very well. He but he well. does it um, just incredibly well. I mean, part of it is that he had the incredible good fortune of getting Max M- Max Mickelson to act this, and he really carries this. I there's not of course. A lot of actors that yeah. could do the kind of acting job he does because so much has to be expressed with you know virtually no dialogue uh, you know virtually no dialogue at all and and i think he does that that really really well i think uh, another moment of the film that i really uh, like is this moment where he's been following the map and And he gets to you know Mm -hmm. kind of a barrier that's not on the map, and uh, and this idea of you know it's the breakdown of modern rationality, Mm -hmm. right? That the map is this ultimate symbol for rationalized space, right? That we've kind of controlled and that we've colonized in all these key ways, Mm -hmm. and it fails him.
1: And that's the invention of of a new way.
0: That's right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's let's turn to uh, the gold rush. This kind of shifts gears rather abruptly in some ways, but we stay uh, mm-hmm. with an Arctic theme. This, of course, is the film that Charlie Chaplin, I think we mentioned in our preview, uh, was one of his favorite films that he did. Uh, he, he talked about it as the picture that he wanted to be remembered by and was re-released. We showed the re-released version. It was re-released in 1942. And uh, the re-releasing actually changed a couple of, of minor things. The big thing was that the relationship between the, the girl and the tramp is slightly different. In the uh, 1925 version, he's a little bit more the butt of jokes, and there's a a note at a crucial time that's passed to him, and it's the uh, the girl's uh, wannabe boyfriend who's kind of leading the tramp along with mm. this with this note so he thinks that that she's interested in him. The way that it was redone in 1942, it really was a note from her saying that she was interested. And I think mm. that that's <clears> a subtle <throat> and oh, small thing. It kind of changes. And then there's uh, the scene yeah. at the boat at the end is slightly different as well.
1: Okay. So they had all that footage and they could just kind of They like did. And it's, edit? A, it's
0: a really good thing that they had the footage because the 1925 mm. film is in much worse shape. Like what was left of the 1925 mm-hmm. was in much worse Shape. When they went to restore it uh, a few years ago, they went back to the footage that existed from 1925 and the footage that existed from 1942. And because they had made copies of the 1925 stuff in 1942, that footage is in much better shape than, than the 1925 mm-hmm. uh, footage. And uh, So why
1: those changes in 1942? Do you know what motivated the film in 1925? and do you know the motivation behind those changes?
0: Well, I think one of the things is that there's a, the Tramp character is understood differently in 1942 than it was in 1925, right? I think that Chaplin saw, you know, he had moved on to doing other kinds of films, you know, after the silent era that had a little bit more depth of character. He played a little bit more complex kinds of roles, and I think he wanted to project that back onto his Tramp figure, and so the, you know, he he takes on a, a little bit more depth and a little bit more complexity. I mean, I think that that's all already there in in the 1925 version, but he's he's allowed to kind of play that up even more. In fact, some of the critique from 1925 was precisely that the tramp wasn't as slapstick as he had been in some mm. of his other previous mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. But for me, I think it works, I think it works really well. The the other thing for this film though that I think is interesting, you asked you know why 1925? Why is this an interesting story? Mm-hmm. Of course the, the idea of the Yukon is a little bit more present in the minds of people, the, you know, the gold rush being a little bit you know more recent but i think what the gist of all the jokes is that here we have you know the modern subject But what does the modern subject do in these kinds of harsh environments, right, where there's this kind of resistance? So the modern subject is supposed to have overcome dependency on the elements in all these kinds of ways. But he hasn't, of course. Right. And that's, you know, that's what's played out again and again and again. The disorientation, you know, in the in the snow, uh, the, you know, the small figure in the overwhelming kind of landscape. And there's an interesting production history, again, that kind of parallels this, that they wanted to film the film, large parts of the film up in Truckee by Donner Pass, mm-hmm. which, you know, that scene of eating the shoe mm-hmm. is all the more, you know, kind of poignant that he's riffing off of, you the, know, the, the Donner parties, hey, yeah. <laughs> eating of their shoes and, and other things, right? <laughs> but the they get up to Truckee, and the only thing that they're able to film is that that very opening sequence where you have all the prospectors mm-hmm. going up the mountain, and it's a really spectacular uh, scene. Uh, apparently they, they shipped in like 600 and and you know i i quote from the you know the newspapers of the time hobos from sacramento <laughs> 600 hobos from sacramento to kind of you know do this do this scene but that was uh, one of the only things they were able to to film there because the weather simply wouldn't cooperate with them and so there was actually this resistance of the elements that's mm-hmm. kind of exactly what they're they're trying to thematize so they end up going back to the studios in hollywood and they make an incredible amount of fake snow out of, you know, cornflakes and mica and Mm -hmm. um, flour. And I mean, it's literally tons and tons, hundreds of tons of this stuff that they're blowing around with jet engines. And, but it's all enacting, Exactly, in, in a sense, what they had experienced up in Truckee, which mm-hmm. is that, you know, the, the way that, that humans interface with the environments around them, that we like to think of ourselves, as, you know, being modern, that we've overcome, uh, you know, kind of material realities in a lot of ways. But there's this resistance, right, that kind of pushes back at, uh, at key times. Well, let's talk about the the last film of the week, Genesis 2.0. The basic premise of this film is that we start in the Arctic, again in Siberia, where the permafrost is slowly melting, revealing the bones of mammoths, right, that have kind of laid Mm -hmm. there for thousands and thousands of years. This story of kind of hunting mammoth tusks, and there's a a great market for them, for their ivory and for, you know, supposed um, medicinal values, is contrasted with another story about cloning Mm -hmm. and about uh, the ethics of uh, synthetic biology, this ability to design life, and in the words of the film, to take control of our own evolution. The story jumps around quite a bit. It's You're in the Arctic, you kind of keep coming back to the Arctic, uh, to Siberia, but then you're in... Boston, you're in South Korea, you're in China, you're kind of all over the place. And this is one of the things that the film was critiqued for is that it jumped around so much. Mm-hmm. But for me, that was kind of what the film was about. was
1: about totally to- totally yes. Yeah, it's
0: the, the way that all of these things are in an interesting kind of way mm-hmm. related. That yeah. you wouldn't think that the life of a kind of almost nomadic, you know, kind of hunter in Siberia, mm-hmm. you know, is linked to biology labs in South Korea or you know, academic conferences in Boston uh, that are you know talking about these things and exploring these things but they are right that they they all kind of find this kind of interrelation
1: so chip what do you think this documentary is saying about the ethics of synthetic biology
0: so one of the hunters makes an interesting comment. Uh, he's, of course not commenting on synthetic biology because they're pretty removed from what people are doing with the mammoth tusk, but he says about finding these because finding one good tusk, it's like you've made it. They call it you know kind of white gold. Mm-hmm. And he says that you know we want more and more and more, and there's a you know for some that they come up and finding one is enough, but for most of them, once they start, it's like you can never find enough, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they come thinking that you know if I can just find one, that'll be good, mm-hmm. but they its they want more and more and more. And, and this, I think, is an interesting kind of parallel to synthetic biology, right? If we can, can find, you know, the gene that, you know, that creates breast cancer, right? Or, you know, a certain kind of breast cancer. And if we have the ability to be able to, you know, through CRISPR technologies or whatever, to be able to kind of edit that out of people's DNA, I mean, yeah, why wouldn't we do that, right? You can kind of alleviate a lot of pain and suffering. But the thing that the, the documentary, I think, is setting up for us is, but when but where do you then draw the line about what's kind of ethical at what point because you can mm-hmm. uh, is it okay to to clone humans mm-hmm. right um, is it okay to select certain traits in humans mm-hmm. and and where's you know where's the boundary of this mm-hmm. in taking control as they say of our own evolution that's an incredible incredible power and it comes with it all of these moral and ethical questions that we're not really answering yet. The, the, the only things that we're answering and that so many of the people working on this are answering are how do we do it? Can we do it? And we're to the point where we can do a lot of these things. But the question but should is: we? Should we do no. these things, right? And that's, you um, know, I think it it really helps to illustrate uh, the limits uh, that that come with, uh, you know, with this technology, and that so often this happens where the technology is ahead of our own morality, mm-hmm. and that we've got to figure out these kinds of things before we can um, before we let our own human greed put us in a really bad place. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you both for, for being here today. And thank you for joining us today on From the Booth. Our podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU, which is supported by the BYU College of Humanities. Uh, we are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here as they don't necessarily represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. We thank our sound engineer, Jojo Hegstrom-Pratt, as well as the staff of the BYU Humanities Resource Center for their help and support. We invite you to check out our preview episodes of the podcast for an introduction to the films without spoilers. Until next time, we hope to see you at International Cinema and in 250 The Kimball Tower. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Marietta. Thank you. See you next time.